Du lytter til Fremtidens næringsliv, en podcast av Young Global Compact og Abelia. Welcome to the podcast Future Business. Uh, that is a cooperation between the Young Global Compact Norway and Abelia. As always, we have the two hosts, uh, Øystein. Uh, welcome to you. Thank you, Kim. Uh, I'm myself, Kim Gabrieli, and I'm the executive director of Young Global Compact uh, Norway. Øystein is the executive director of Abelia. Uh, and Øystein, what is Abelia? Let's just remind our listeners. Yes, just two words. Abelia is part of the Confederation of Norwegian Enterprise, and we are the Federation of Technology and Knowledge-Based Companies in Norway. So that is us. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Paul Polman. I'm going to introduce you in a second, but I just want to say welcome to you, first of all. Thank you for having me. So you have an impressive CV. I'm not going to go through all of it, but I need to, you know, a couple of the the highlights, you're the former CEO of Unilever. Uh, you are also the co-founder and chair of Imagine, that I'm sure we will hear more about throughout the, the podcast. And of course, for us in, in the Nor- Norwegian uh, office of the UN Global Compact, uh, the UN Organization for uh, Sustainable Business, we are especially proud that you are our co-chair uh, of the executive board. Uh, where the, the Secretary General of the UN is uh, is the, the chair. So, um, but then of course now you are also are a co-author together with Andrew Winston on a new book called Net Positive. And I think I'm gonna uh, you know, start there basically. And historically we talked about that companies should do, do no harm, they should do net zero. And now through the, yeah, the, the years since we met for a podcast last time in, in, in London, just a couple of weeks before whole Europe uh, closed. Uh, and I mean, the, what we talked about then, it, it's interesting how, we, I mean, everything happens since, I mean, uh, it's, it just shows how difficult it is to, to you know, to sort of analyze the future. Uh, but you have tried it again in a new book, uh, Net Positives. I would really like to hear your perspective starting there on the, on the book. Uh, what does it mean? And then we will come into, uh, let's try to interpret the future again. Uh, and hopefully we are a bit better than we were two years ago, I guess. Um, so Paul, the word, the word is yours. Well, thank you. first of all, thank you, Kim. And thank you, Erstein, uh, for uh, having me again. And certainly a lot of respect for what you're doing with the UN Global Compact and uh, Abelia as well. Uh, it's indeed uh, interesting that we met just before COVID and Boy, has the world changed. Uh, lots of respect for what you have achieved with the UN uh, Global Compact in Norway, which is a relatively young organization. Uh, but you already have 360 members companies uh, and working at the same time on the functional networks and the solution platforms, taking the initiative on science-based target initiatives and, and basically being on, on, on track and online with our global very exciting agenda that we have with the UN Global Compact. The reason I wrote this book is is very easy. If I may start by explaining that this wonderful world is 4.6 billion years old. And if I put it on the scale of 46 years, human beings have only been here for four hours. The Industrial Revolution only started one minute ago. 
and in that one minute we have cut down half the world's forests. Uh, if you look at uh, World Overshoot Day, this is the day that we use up more resources than the world can replenish. This year it's July 28th. Over the last five decades, we've lost 68% of the world's species, vertebrates, mammals, birds, reptiles. Some people call it the sixth greatest extinction. In other words, we're living well beyond our planetary boundaries. Our linear extractive production model where only about 9% of things we produce can be reused, whilst the rest ends up in landfill incineration or increasingly oceans, has clearly come to an end. I think more than ever we've discovered that we cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. Yet most companies are still in the CSR mode, corporate social responsibility, which really deals with being less bad. If you look at the COP26 in Glasgow, where the commitments were made by companies, or you look at the company's annual sustainability reports, you see a little bit less carbon emission, a little bit less plastics in the ocean, a little bit less deforestation in the value chain. But when we've overshot these planetary boundaries so much, less bad is still bad. I apologize for the comparison, but I used to kill 10 people, now I kill only 5 people. I'm not a better murderer. So people say, I get it, I want to be sustainable, so I want to be net zero. So we see lots of commitments down the road for net zero. Unfortunately, many not backed up with clear action. But to be sustainable or to maintain or to do no harm is very noble, but that's not enough either. The book argues that the only thing that counts is to be restorative, reparative, regenerative, and that is what we call net positive, with two very simple questions. How can business profit from solving the world's problems, not creating the world's problems? And is the world really better off because your company is in it? Yes or no? So you basically, but you're not, because when we talk about net zero, we very often think about the missions, right? But when you are talking about net positive, you're not only talking about taking out um, uh, CO2 from the air, put it into, you know, carbon storage, for example, you are also, you have, it's a wider definition of net positive, generally, I mean, uh, taking the soil back in a regenerative agriculture, uh, but that, do you, what other examples would you put forward as the net, the, the net positive that companies can do? Yeah, for us, net positive is quite different than net zero. It covers all the elements, environmental, social and governance and not only climate. Net zero is not a regenerative concept. It is just doing no harm. We go well beyond that. And, uh, and it really is uh, for us a beacon for all of the businesses that they should strive to. Increasingly, uh, Kim, we see signs of net zero coming into business models. Walmart protecting a million square miles of ocean. Nestle Unilever making big commitments on regenerative agriculture. Walmart going back to 1975 to take carbon out of the air since they started the company. Uh, companies making commitments on being water positive. Um, uh, MasterCard making commitments to reach 500 million people and drive uh, financial inclusion. These are all examples increasingly where companies starting to think more net positive and actually help improve the state of the world not make it worse. 
what we now need to do, and as the book argues, is that, that it is as much a leadership transformation as it is a company or systems transformation. So we need to start with ourselves, then increasingly work with our value chain and our own companies, and then, last but not least, the broader transformations that we need in society to hit the challenging targets. Unfortunately, both climate change and inequality, which probably are the biggest issues, are both going in the wrong direction. This decade, carbon emissions up 16%. We need to go down 45%. And with the terrible war in the Ukraine and the COVID crisis, we have seen that the gap between the haves and the not-haves have actually increased. And many more families are stressed in terms of dealing with the increased prices of food or energy. So we're not in a good position. Most businesses know what direction we need to go but it lacks the ambitions, the speed and the scale in an environment that has become more challenging. Uh, Paul, could we, could we emphasize or talk a little bit more about exactly the role of business? We, those of us who studied business in, in the last millennium, we remember very well, of course, Milton Friedman, the business of business is business. And, and uh, your point and your paradigm is uh, completely different from that. Uh, why? I mean, isn't it still the main purpose of a business to make a, a, a profit and to make sure they can sustain their employees and so on? Could you, could you just make it uh, even clearer to us why this is also good business to, to care about the net positive message that you have? Well, first of all, business is 65% of the global economy, 85% of the job creation, and 95% of the financing. We simply cannot implement the Sustainable Development Goals, which has of objective to not leave anybody behind, to irreversibly eradicate poverty, and do that in a more sustainable and equitable way. We cannot achieve that without the help of business. I looked at the 17 goals and 169 targets, and I would argue that about 85 to 90% of them actually actively need business. Business has the innovations, the funds, the resources, the capacity to create larger skill coalitions nowadays to implement. And frankly, business needs as much the Sustainable Development Goals as the Sustainable Development Goals need business. Business cannot succeed in environments that fail and increasingly because we're not addressing these most burning issues like climate change and inequality at the speed and scale needed, businesses also incurring tremendous costs that they have to deal with. Increasingly, we see that the myoptic focus on the shareholder alone, optimizing the shareholder return at the expense of the other stakeholders, is really not a good idea, and it doesn't really help companies. The short-termism that has crept into the financial market the short-termism that has crept into many of the businesses or business models is actually destroying wealth, not creating wealth. Increasingly, we can see that companies that operate under the longer-term multi-stakeholder model, purpose-driven, putting sustainability at the heart of their strategy, are also companies that are better performing. Companies that more aggressively attack climate change are companies that are getting higher values from the market because they're better positioned for the future, less risk, more opportunity. Companies that treat their employees better have a higher employee engagement.
Companies that have a stronger purpose have a higher attraction to work uh, for these companies and they attract the talent. All of that is translating itself into increasingly better results. We see the same in the financial market, which is rapidly moving from seeing uh, sustainability as a risk mitigation to an incredible opportunity that they need to seize. They're actually pushing companies faster than we've seen in the past to drive these changes. And that is because we're at the cost. We're at the point where the cost of not acting is starting to become higher than the cost of acting, which makes it such an, in, an attractive business proposition to change the mobility system, to change our energy system, to change the way we built our buildings, to change the way we feed the world. Major transformations needed, but all of these transformations will actually result in lower cost and more resilient economies than the, the current trajectory that we are on. So a huge opportunity that the smart companies take and seize, and the ones that continue to deny that, I think are increasingly heading to the graveyard of dinosaurs. Looking at the various challenges and developments over the last two years, from COVID to the current situation in Ukraine and to the worsening climate crisis, what do you, Paul, see as the key ESG-related trends in the coming years? Of course, it's, as we know, very difficult now to predict. But what do you see that we need to focus on as governments, as businesses going forward? Yeah, that's a very important question. We have definitely seen that COVID has exacerbated the risks and vulnerabilities that have been building in the global economy. I think with COVID, we've discovered that we cannot have healthy people on an unhealthy planet. People better understand now the relationships between biodiversity, human health, inequality, climate change, the racial dimensions with the tragic death of George Floyd, and obviously the economy as well. In fact, we should remind ourselves that COVID, a zoonotic disease, just like SARS, Zika, Ebola, Asian flu, etc., is a direct result of the destruction of biodiversity. There's more awareness as a result of the failings of our system and actually also the related costs. Just in Europe alone and the US, COVID has cost us $17 trillion dollars just in... Um, trying to save lives and livelihoods. That is infinitely more than what it would cost us actually to avoid these issues in the first place. I believe we're coming at a point that the cost of not acting is actually now higher than the cost of acting. So a tremendous economic opportunity that uh, COVID has actually brought to life. Better to prevent the issues from happening now than paying the enormous costs of our failures. The good thing is that unlike um, the financial crisis uh, 13, 14 years ago, when unfortunately governments in the world did not take action, most of the money was spent on uh, saving banks. People felt they were, banks were too big to fail, but people were too small to matter. But now, since COVID, we've actually seen an acceleration in actions by governments in terms of moving to this greener, more inclusive economy that we need. Before COVID, we had 20% of the countries making net zero commitments to be in line with the Paris Agreement. We now have 65% of countries, nearly 95% of emissions 
covered by net zero agreements. We seen, have seen business stepping up. Uh, three times more companies have come into the science-based targets and making net zero commitments than, uh, than two years ago. We have the financial community waking up. The Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero has $130 trillion of money under management, making commitments to decarbonize their portfolios. And more importantly, we see the people in the world speaking up, increasingly deciding to only work for companies that take responsible actions, to only buy from companies that try to make this a better world. So we have a significant change in momentum. Now, obviously, with the uh, war in the Ukraine and many of the geopolitical conflicts, uh, the, the governments itself in many countries having become more short term, there is no doubt that we have headwinds. But having said that, these headwinds should us make us more determined to move faster. We see in Europe, for example, because we've been so slow on the energy transition, because we have not met the promises with actions, the Ukraine crisis is actually accelerating, accelerating the move to green energy. So, and that is very important. Uh, we should, uh, the food crisis, likewise, except for the first time we have food on the global agenda that frankly for a long time was not part of the global discussions. So on the one hand, positive momentum that we need to accelerate. On the other hand, some headwinds that we need to deal with. Yeah, I think actually we wanted to ch challenge you a bit on that because I mean, I, I remember I, I heard you talking about in, in the UN General Assembly a couple of years ago that or almost three years ago, it must have been, you said the sustainable development goals are the business opportunity or the business plan of our time. And I think as you're rightly putting forward now that that, that is uh, still true, um, but we are also meeting challenges to uh, ensure that. And uh, the Secretary General uh, Guterres, he, he said, I mean, in the global crisis response group that he put together, they, fo they focus especially on, like you said, the energy, food and finance. And with your background, I would like to challenge you a bit on uh, the food industry, because there is, you know, there is a huge... Uh, challenge to to meet more sustainable supply chains on from yes the eu says from farm to fork right so so what are your, your perspectives on on this now looking back with the background you have and and you know after the ukraine war well you know the food system was already broken before the ukraine war if i want to be honest we um, already saw food prices being very volatile and um and it wasn't working before either. It was driving deforestation, keeping the smallholder farmers uh, poor, driving incredible amounts of food waste, and frankly, um, too many people um, malnutritioned, whilst others are overnutritioned. Uh, this food system is really designed perhaps for 3 billion people, if you look at it scientifically, and we currently have 8 billion people going to 10 billion people. The good thing is that people now understand that in order to change the climate crisis and solve the climate crisis, we also need to have nature-based solutions and that our food system plays an important role in that. 25% of the climate emissions come actually from the food system, uh, the deforestation, the meat and the methane from livestock, etc. are just some examples of that. If food waste itself would be a country, 
it would be the third biggest emitter after China and the US. People are starting to understand also that it could be 30% of the solution. In fact, any dollar invested in... Can I yeah. ask you, Paul, on, on, if you would identify three like main things that need to be done with the, with the food system? I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but... I, no, it's I no really problem. Think, you know, you are, you are always so good at, uh, at the hope side or looking on what yeah. are the opportunities. And, and I think the food area is a specifically challenging area, right? Uh, it, it is so, a challenging. So three yeah. yeah, it is a challenging area, but we are seeing movements there as well, increasingly coming in. You have companies like in Norway. You have companies like um, Mills that uh, have half their food waste, or companies like Yara that look at green hydrogen and green ammonia technology, like precision agriculture coming in. Increasingly, we see moves to more responsible, what we might call regenerative agricultural practices. So a lot of things are actually happening. I would say to convert the food system, which first of all has a very high return for its investment and also a much quicker effect than changing the other energy systems, which are much more capital intensive. But the first thing we need to do um, in, is move to a sustainable regenerative farming methods. Uh, we can capture carbon in the soil again. It might also give the farmers a better livelihoods. We enrich the soil and we get more uh, nutritious food. The second thing we need to do is invest in farmers and farming communities. We have underinvested in food. We're investing 4% of our funds in our food systems, whilst they are 30% of the solutions. We definitely need to accelerate the shift towards healthier plant-rich diets. We need to move away from thinking in calories, cheap and bad calories, to actually nutritious and healthy food. This is as much about human health as it is about nutrition. As I talked, we need to reduce the food loss and food waste. And then most importantly, we need to engage in these transformative partnerships that we talked about in the book Net Positive to drive the broader systems changes. There currently is about six to $700 billion of perverse subsidies in agriculture that actually drive us in the wrong direction. So if we look at the price on carbon and the carbon capture that we can get uh, rewarded for, we look at the yield increase of sustainable farming, we look at the reducing the food waste and redirecting our subsidies, I would argue there is enough money in there to transform our food systems and at the same time save an estimated $12 trillion on negative externalities. So this is a huge opportunity. And not surprisingly, you see many of the PE funds and, and, the, uh, and the, the financing moving in this direction now. And uh, uh, just before I give the word back to you, Stan, and you take us through the, the, the next step in the podcast, uh, I just wanted to reflect on that because exactly what you're talking about now, regenerative uh, farming and, you know, uh, system, uh, small farmers or farmers in general, um, and the financing is exactly the, the topics that you, so the UN Global Compact is now putting together uh, um, Food Coalition is for now the, <laughs> the, the working title. Yeah, yeah, no. I'm very happy that you have uh, created the uh, Global Compact Food Coalition. 
I'm also happy it is now more prominently on the agenda in the COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh than it is on the agenda of the G7. Indonesia puts it now on the G20. Uh, if anything, the Ukraine crisis has accelerated the awareness and with the Secretary General's focus, the need for action as well. So I, 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 I applaud the initiative. Paul, towards the end of our podcast, I would like to, to talk with you a little bit about two important words. The one is, um, is uh, hope and the other one is purpose. You have a very optimistic view, even though, as we are discussing, there are big challenges ahead. Uh, but you seem to be overall optimistic. And preparing for, for meeting you, I, I listened to a very good podcast made by the famous uh, Jane Goodall. Uh, and and she asked you an interesting question that I would like to repeat. What what is your greatest reason for hope? Uh, looking at the the opportunity of business and and the development goals. Well, Jane is a very dear friend, and she doesn't live far from here, and uh, we talk often, and 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 she energizes me, and she actually has written recently a book that is called Hope. I was at a panel with some. Um, the uh, the the late Desmond Tutu at the UN actually once during the UN General Assembly week, and he was asked, "Are you optimistic or pessimistic?" Um, and he said, "I'm a prisoner of hope," and I think that's a very nice answer to describe this. We have uh, all we always underestimate the speed of technology. Now, in most parts of the world, uh, green energy is cheaper than fossil. Uh, the we are close to a tipping point on mobility with the electric vehicles. We see the acceleration in the change in agriculture to regenerative agriculture. Technology always goes faster. We think linear, but technology goes exponential. The second reason I'm hopeful is a little bit what we've talked about, that the cost of not acting is actually becoming yeah. higher than the cost of acting, which is interesting because the, the interest of the shareholders and the other stakeholders are actually converging. It becomes a big business opportunity. And last but not least, it's the young people. Half of the population is below 30 years old. They're going to be 100% tomorrow. They are more purpose-driven. They embrace partnerships. They think multi-generational. So there is an enormous amount of hope. And frankly, study after study that has been done, be it by the UN Global Compact, consultants, International Energy Agency, shows that although it's tough, although we have to work hard together, overcome some of these barriers like the geopolitical tensions and all, but that by all means we can still achieve the targets if we really work together and, uh, and focus on them. So, you know, fear doesn't move people. Hope certainly moves people. If you have a choice between an optimist and a pessimist, I would always take the optimist route because... Although you both have the same life, optimists have always a happier life. So I'd encourage everybody to be um, realistically uh, optimistic or to be hopeful as we embark on the challenges moving forwards. And perhaps having purpose in your life is, is exactly what you're talking about. But, but many people are talking about uh, purpose and there are so many books and podcasts made about uh, this. So wh why is purpose more than a buzzword to you? Well, purpose is your real reason for being, as Colin Meyer in his book Prosperity calls it, uh, to profitably address the issues of people and planet. And companies that truly can embed that purpose into all they do, 
that can translate that into real behavior and values so that you get the right culture tend to do better. We can now see that companies that are more purpose driven have a higher uh, shareholder return as well. And it's not surprising. The environment is very uncertain and volatile. Purpose gives you that beacon and that direction. It motivates employees, especially the millennials and the Gen Cs are more purpose driven. They want to work on something bigger than they can achieve themselves. They want to leave this world in a better place than they found it. So purpose really gives you that additional energy focus alignment that ultimately gets translated into business results. For Unilever, that was the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, um, where we have very uh, aggressive targets in, in line with science and what the world needs. And what we found was when we put that plan out there, it not only energized our own people and got very high engagement scores, but in most countries, we became the preferred employer. We started to be the third most looked up company on LinkedIn after Google and Apple. 2 million people applying every year. And you can understand that all of that translates itself into better business results, just to give you an example. So purpose is extremely important. And, um, but more importantly than having the statement once more is to make it come alive. And many companies in that respect fail. The say-do gap is high. The targets are sometimes set too low. The CEOs lack the courage to really go out there and help drive these broader transformations. Many companies still don't take responsibility of their total impact in the world. They stay at scope one and two only. So for all these reasons, we've written the book to give people first and foremost personal courage. It starts with leadership in all of this and your personal transformation. And then very practically, we take the readers in net positive through the company as well as the broader systems transformations, including some of the tougher challenges that many people don't want to talk. The challenges of paying tax, human rights, money in politics, trade associations, lobbying for different things than you stand for, CEO salaries, and the list goes on. It's that consistency now that we need to get into more companies. And the companies that do this, I think will get more respect also from their own employees will be better leaders, will have a higher trust. And that ultimately is the currency that we need now more than ever to solve the issues that, uh, that we're currently facing. Thank you, Paul. Kim, we are all looking for purpose, aren't we? I think it would help our lives and, and facilitate it. It certainly helps me to be more courageous and, uh, and be more focused in, in where I can make the bigger difference. And I hope that's true for everybody. Yeah, I guess that's one of the, the great things we we have that we are meeting so many people in the post podcast to talk about purpose and uh, we are getting uh, closer to an end I would say Stan, on the on the podcast but I think we have one question uh, left perhaps um, I mean is it really I mean Ustan already asked the question about is it the business or business to to save the world but but perhaps it's um, what do you think your critics will, will say? You know, you always get the, the easy question. So what, what would you be critical about uh, the net positive uh, book? Where are the challenging parts here? Um, yeah, it just it would be interesting to see what you think are the, the most crit the critic uh, criticized part of your, uh, let's say, uh, uh, yeah, your whole life uh, for a more uh, responsible business. Well, this, no, this is not an easy transition. 
This is bigger than the scale of the industrial revolution, and we need to do it faster than the speed of the technological revolution. We've never decarbonized our global economy. You know how difficult that is for a country like Norway, and it's in the middle of your political discussions. We need to completely redesign our food systems, our mobility systems, the way we built our houses. A tremendous opportunity, but we've never done that in such a short time window that we have. So it needs all of us. And with all of us, I mean the partnerships, the famous, South, the famous African proverb that alone you can go fast, but together you can go far is more important now than ever. Goal 17 of the Sustainable Development Goals is a more important beacon now than ever to work in partnerships for the common good. True leadership is understanding that putting the interest of others ahead of your own, you're actually better off yourself as well. And it is exactly these partnerships now with civil society, with governments that on the one hand are badly needed, but on the other hand are also very difficult to do when we have a political environment that isn't quite functioning. Uh, increasingly shorter term, um, populist, nationalist, xenophobics, uh, the, the global uh, cooperation, uh, not anymore designed uh, in a way or delivering in a way that it was designed for, the multilateral institutions not quite working. That is why it's so important that business steps up, gets together, helps de-risk the political process, keeps, gives our politicians more courage to move these frameworks forward faster. Ultimately, we will not get there if we get the wrong signals from governments. So what Europe is doing with the Green Deal is applaudable with the taxonomy, the biodiversity, farm to four pack, farm package. They set clear directions. And this is what business needs. And we need to write legislation on the books for that. So that's probably the biggest challenge. That is why it's important that business speaks up when democracy gets undermined, when rights of people get violated, when governments slip back and, and give in to uh, the lobbyists and, and the money of the uh, fossil fuel industry. This is a moment now for all of us to collectively show the courage because frankly, the future of humanity is at stake. And yet we're so close making this the biggest economic opportunity of the century. The ones that understand that will do well, the ones that continue to deny it, I believe will be headed to the graveyard of dinosaurs. Thank you, Paul. Paul Pullman, it's been a pleasure having you on our podcast uh, again. You are the former CEO of Unilever. You are the former CFO and head of Americas of Nestle. And we all know that you are also established uh, Imagine in 19, 2019. This is a foundation and corporation that aims to help companies meet the SDGs. And of course, now, uh, just very currently, you are the, the co-author of the book Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. And this, Kim, this is the challenge to all of us in the business community, isn't it? So thank you, Paul, and, and, and uh, it's time to round off this episode of our podcast. Thank you both for having me and thank hopefully so see you uh, soon again in person. Thank you very much.